Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. Hear now the word of the living God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down, the mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. You are indeed angry, for we have sinned. In these ways we continue and we need to be saved. But we are all like the unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter and all we are the work of your hand. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. Will you restrain yourself because of these things, O Lord? Will you hold your peace and afflict us very severely? This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Now, O Lord, we ask. We plead, in some cases in this room, we beg that you might speak to your people through the preached word. That you might gather your little lambs, O Lord Christ, and nurture them through your word. Help us, we pray. Fix our minds that are so prone to wonder on Christ the King this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning, a question for us to consider. What does it look like? To return to God. What does it look like when after a period of spiritual barrenness, you return to the living God? What might it be like for one who feels like their life is described in these last three verses? Desolate, a wilderness, burnt down, laid waste. What might it look like for such a one or such a community to return to the living God? This is at least one of the questions in the background of Isaiah 64. You'll recall from last week in our time in Isaiah that Isaiah is prophesying 
about 700 years or so before the coming of Christ. This is a time of decline among God's people, and there is a growing secular Gentile pagan kingdom in Assyria. Eventually, the sin of the people, God's covenant people, would bring judgment and exile upon them. And God uses Isaiah to prophesy that God would raise up Cyrus, a Gentile ruler, to free his people. But more importantly, God would raise up a true servant, a true servant of God who would free his people from their greatest burden and sin. The fingerprints of Jesus are all over Isaiah. The book is 60 plus chapters. The first 39 speak to God's coming judgment upon his sinful people. Chapters 40 to 55, you could say, are prophecies regarding exile and God's coming servant, the suffering servant. It's in that section that we read words like this. He was despised and rejected by men. Yet we esteemed him not, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. It pleased the Lord to crush him. And God has laid upon him the iniquities, the sins of us all. But in the last ten or so chapters of the book of Isaiah, from chapter 56 onward, we receive ultimate pictures of salvation that culminate in new creation. So think about this. God's old covenant people are sinful. They're living out of covenant with God in their lives, if you will, and God will judge them. But God will ultimately free a remnant of them and through them bring about a servant that will change all of creation into a new creation. If you're interested in reading a picture of that new creation, just read the last two chapters of the Bible. For there we see the picture of this servant among all of his people down through the ages, Jews and Gentiles alike. And there they are gathered with him in the presence of the triune God. No sin, no death. Darkness is gone. And all of creation has been renewed. So the final few chapters of this book are a description of hope and of a coming time. When God's rule will be seen in ways that it has not yet been seen. And Isaiah, prophesying in the midst of all of this, says these words to God. Oh, that you would tear open. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And out of verse 1 flows several components related to our question. What does it look like for the living God to come down to rend the heavens figuratively, as it were? To make his presence known to an individual or to a community and for those people to return to the living God. What does true longing for God look like? Look, friend, maybe you are in the last three verses of this chapter. You might say that your life, quite frankly, spiritually for the last week, month, year, or perhaps even several years, Christian, has been a barren wasteland, a barren wasteland spiritually. 
In fact, you may feel as though you have wandered from God so far that even the thought of returning evades you. What does it look like to return to God? I think in this chapter we see three simple truths about longing for God, about returning to the living God. The first we see in the first few verses, and this is the reality of a remembrance of God's glory and ways. Returning to God involves remembering God's glory and his ways. In verse 1, we see this overarching, if you will, cry of the prophet. Oh, that you would tear open, rend the heavens, and come down. Now, boys and girls, God doesn't need to tear the sky in order to come down. Isaiah is using human-like language. He's saying, oh, Lord, the sky is like a huge sheet. Would you just tear it open and come down and be among us? And then notice the images that are given. These images describe desire that the mountains might shake at your presence. How strong would you have to be, boys and girls, for mountains to shake at your presence? Very strong. As fire burns brushwood, you ever seen fire burn wood quickly? Remember one year, We burned a tree in our backyard. It was a pine tree, and those of you adults that know what happens when you burn pine will know what happens. Within seconds, the thing was aflame, and the flames were everywhere. We were fine. But Isaiah's picture here is as fire burns brushwood, wood that is dry and regular, ready to be soaked up by the flames of fire. As fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries. Part of the desire is that adversaries would be crushed or that they would bow the knee to the living God. For God's people had adversaries then and God's people have adversaries now. The word pictures of remembering God's glory and God's ways. Look at verse 3. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. There's that phrase again. The mountains shaking at your presence. When in the history of Israel was it as if God's presence was known in such a way that the mountains were shaking? And of course, most scholars will argue this is an allusion to the parting of the Red Sea. When unexpectedly it seemed, God opened the sea and his people walked through on dry land. And then in an instant, the mountainous waves crushed the Egyptians. It's a picture of salvation, isn't it? God is glorious and God's ways are glorious. Part of returning to God is remembering God's glory and what God has done and who he is. Friends, so often in this world, we forget Who God is. We're fascinated. We're held captive by far less valuable things. And God sometimes allows his people to stay occupied by these worthless things. 
But then in his mercy and grace occasionally tilts their head up that they may see, ah, there is the rare jewel. There is the true value. That is what my soul truly seeks. And it's this tilting of the head that causes someone like Isaiah to cry out, Oh Lord, would you just rend the heavens? Would you come down? Now maybe you are that barren wasteland, but inside you're thinking, Oh, I wish. I wish in my spiritual life the Lord would simply rend the heavens and come down. I want to return to Him. I don't want to remain in spiritual dryness. I don't want the enemies of my faith to include my own sin to have victory over me anymore. See, a return to God involves remembering God's glory. In God's ways. Look at verse 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. See, Isaiah is pointing, fixing our focus again. You are the true God. There is none besides you. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses a similar phrase? When speaking about the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2.9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. The 1600s commentator Matthew Poole, writing on this phrase, says this, quote, not to be restrained to these, but to be applied to all the wonderful works that God at all times wrought for his people. And thus they are a plea with God that they might well expect such things from him now that had done such wonderful things for their fathers of old. It's almost as if Isaiah is the mouthpiece of the covenant people of God. Lord, would you come down again? Would you work among us again? Would you work in my heart again? Verse 5, he says this, you meet him who rejoices and does Righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Maybe it's been a little while, friends, since you have thought on the ways of God. What he's done, how he's blessed you, what his law reveals about him and requires of you. You see, returning to the Lord involves remembering God's glory and God's ways. But there's a promise in this, isn't there? And it comes by way of a description of God. Look how God is described here. Now, again, the picture we have of the people of God seen very clearly in verses 10, 11, and 12 is a wasteland. Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praise you. Where you did things in the past. It's burned up with fire. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you would say, I wish that season that I had of walking in closeness with the Lord would return. But I've wandered so far, it's as if all of the closeness that I experienced with King Jesus back then has been burnt. It's gone. And all our pleasant things are laid to waste. Now this is the picture that we have. 
But then notice in the midst of the cry for God to come down, to rend the heavens and come down, what do we see? Verse 5, listen to how God is described. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Verse 4 at the end, who acts for the one who waits for him. God is pictured as acting for those who wait for him. Maybe in the midst of your busy life and all that you have going on and all of the things of the world which seems to be moving so rapidly. Maybe there is a fledgling desire in your heart that that you might be able to return to God. Well, it starts, friends, with remembering God's glory and God's ways. But there's a second component to returning to God. And we see it here in verses 6 and 7, and that is a right understanding of our sin. Look at verse 5. In these ways, we continue. What ways? Well, in the previous verse, you are indeed angry for we have sinned. In these ways, we continue and we need to be saved. And then the people are described in their sin. Look there at verse six. But we are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. You see, a return to God involves remembering God's glory and his ways, but it involves a right understanding, a refocusing, if you will, on what our sin truly is. In verse 6, it's described as an unclean thing term that is often used for ritual or ceremonial impurity. When we are filthy, we are unclean and we cannot enter into your presence. Think of the picture of that in the Old Testament. The need to meet with God by way of sacrifice, by way of priest. But certain rituals had to be undertaken. And it's as if Isaiah is saying on behalf of the people, we're unclean. All of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Undoubtedly, many of you will recognize this term. It's a Hebrew term which quite literally signifies menstrual garments. This is what our own righteousness outside of Christ is like. Which, if you then take that into the Old Covenant, would imply being unclean. And notice from verses 5 through 7, there is a description of sin. Verse 5, it permeates us. It permeates us. In these ways, we continue. Verse 6, it pollutes us. Unclean thing, filthy rags. And verse 7, it separates us. There is no one who calls on your name for you have hidden your face from us. 
This is the reality of our sin. Now, friend, those of us that are in Christ are not necessary necessarily to take these verses as something that continues to be a back and forth reality. When you trust in Christ, all of your sins have been laid on him and he's dealt with them. So there's not a sense in which you go in and out of the courtroom of God. Am I saved? Am I not saved? But relationally with God, who never disowns his own, there can often be periods where you're living in sin. Your relationship with God is polluted by sin and you're under the, as our confession says, the fatherly displeasure of God. I love that phrase in the confession. It's one of my favorites. Those of you that don't know what confession I'm talking about, I'm talking about our church statement of faith. The second London confession. That it's very possible for true believers to live for a season in sin and in that sin they experience not the displeasure of God, but the fatherly displeasure of See, God is always and forever the father of those that are united to Christ. But sometimes we need to return to God out of sin. Let me just ask the question. Are there those in this room this day who need to have a right understanding of your current sin? You're a believer. You've been saved. You've trusted in Christ. You've been walking with God. But for the last few months, maybe even the last few years... You've been polluted by particular sins. These sins will not take you into the courtroom, for that verdict has been issued. It is finished. But, relationally with God the Father, you're living as if you're in a wasteland. The temple that is your spiritual life, as it were, seems to have crumbled all around you. Even the pleasant things of walking with Jesus in sweet communion are, as verse 11 says, laid waste. A return to God is when God, by his grace, tilts your head in such a way that you remember his glory and his ways. And that you begin to understand your sin. As it were, you come out of the stupor of living in current sins. And you say, I need to return to my God. What does it look like to return to God? Well, by his grace, you remember his glory and his ways. And by his grace, you see more sin in your life. And you see it for what it is, a pollution And that which causes a level of relational division between you and your father. Now for this thought, we need to consider the larger context of Isaiah. In the previous chapter, there is a description of repentance of sin. Look at verse 15 of chapter 63. You'll see a very similar phrase. Look down from heaven. 63 at the end and confessing sin is look down from heaven. 64 is, would you just tear open the heavens and come down? Look down from heaven and see from your holy habitation, holy and glorious, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless, you are our father. Though Abraham was ignorant of us, 
And Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from everlasting is your name. O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? Return for your servant's sake, the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled. Those who were never called by your name. There's a call of penitence, of repentance, that then flows into chapter 64. You see, returning to God means you recognize God again for who he is. You don't fully comprehend God. That will never be possible for a finite creature. But you know the living God. You've been saved by his son. And yet, you've forgotten his glory and his ways. And you have forgotten the reality of what sin truly is. But now, by his spirit, he has so tilted your head that you remember again. You remember his glory. You remember his ways. Both what he's done in your life and what he's called you to do. You remembered his law again. And so now you, you have a right understanding of your sin. Listen, Christian, if you're sitting here today under the deep weight of the filth and pollution of your sin, if you feel like in your current journey, every step you take, you see more of it, and you begin to question, how can I truly be in the faith when there is just more and more sin that I detest? And this is a glorious sign. When you see this reality in your life, not that you see sin, but that you see sin. It's a gift of God. Because He has granted you the ability to see it for what it is. There's a third component of returning to the living God. And this is one of my favorites. You see, returning to God as an individual or as a community of faith does involve remembering God's glory and his ways. It, it does involve a right or renewed understanding of your own sin. But thirdly and finally, it involves a complete reliance on God's grace. Verses 5 through 7 list the sin the pollution of it, the separation relationally of it. But then look at verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. Now in the previous passage, Isaiah 63, verse 16, when confessing sins, we see the same words. Doubtless you are our Father. Now, I don't know if you see what's happening here, but in the midst of the wasteland of spiritual life, there is a bold gospel reliance. Isaiah, as it were, is proclaiming a gospel reality. What do I mean by gospel reality? Look what he says. He's just said, Lord, you have hidden your face from us. And have consumed us because of our iniquities. Boys and girls, that's a big word meaning sins. So what does he do? But now, O Lord, and then notice what he says. You are our Father. 
You want to know what marks the difference between a guilty unbeliever and a guilty believer? One of them says continually till he dies to the living God, you are my father. You see, if Christianity, friend, for you is the message that you are a sinner and that you have guilt, you haven't gotten the full picture. Yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you are guilty before the living God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ gives the believer, the guilty believer, if you will, the one who realizes once again, I've fallen into sin. I've fallen into spiritual lethargy and laziness. The ability in a moment to say, but you are my father. This is not what Judas said when he felt guilty. This is not what the religions of the world offer their adherents when they feel guilty. But it is what the living God, through Christ, by His Spirit, has forged in your heart. A return to God is the constant reminder that we are wholly reliant on the grace of God. All we can do, God, in the midst of our spiritual barrenness is say, You are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. If you don't shape this, it will not happen. And all we are the work of your hand. So don't remember our iniquity forever. Now Isaiah was a little bit ahead of his time. He wasn't wrong. And I don't think we should divide the Bible into Old Testament and New Testament people in such a way that we've got two different ways of finding salvation. Isaiah and every old covenant believer who believed the promise are our brothers and sisters in Christ. What do I mean then by Isaiah is a little bit ahead of his time? Look what he says in verse 9. No, remember our iniquity forever. Indeed, please look, we all are your people. The blood of Jesus that would be shed some 700 years later would make this prayer a finished reality. You see, a return to God is not a reliance on our effort. It's not a reliance on our ability to return. It's not a reliance on our ability to do better next time. It is simply the reliance on God's grace. You are our Father. Isaiah has several references to God as Father throughout his work. Interestingly enough, Several other writers use this same image in verse 8 of clay and potter. Paul uses this image in Romans 9, 20 and 21. Jeremiah uses this image in Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6. What does it look like to return to the living God? It looks like one who stands with their face towards the heavens. It says, you are. My father, you are the potter and I am the clay. And all I can do is come to you pleading who you said you are in covenant with me. Father. He is asking for pardon for the community based on God's people being his covenant people. Again, the context here, go over a few verses back 
Isaiah 63, 7 through 14. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed upon us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people. What right does Isaiah, a mere man, speaking on behalf of a polluted, filthy people, what right does he have to say to the living God, the triune God, the one who rules all things, you are our father? How dare he? But not. Because God has said it. God, you are the one who has said, these are my people. Children who will not lie. So he became their savior. God has given every believer the constant ability to call him father because he sent his son to be crushed for those polluted sinners. Verse 9 of chapter 63. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence. So I'd love to camp out there. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old. Moses and his people saying, where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble as a beast goes down into the valley and the spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. What does it look like to return to the living God? You remember again God's glory and the ways of God. You have a right picture of your sin again before God. But your whole reliance is on God's grace. Now, if you're reading the Bible chronologically, as I said, we're about 700 years before Jesus was even born. There is a small group of people in the Middle East called Hebrews. Abraham is their father, and they've been given a set of promises. That one day, through them, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But they keep fumbling with the promise. They keep messing up to the point that God will eventually exile them. He'll take away covenant blessings and the old covenant from them. But here, Isaiah cries out. There is a a remnant of this old covenant people remembering God and his ways, seeing truly what their sin is and relying on his grace. But one of the beautiful pictures of this old covenant people is what we read a few chapters before. Because I'm going to go out on a limb here and say very few of us in this room probably would say that you're Jewish. I'm not a Hebrew. Many of you are not Hebrews. What does this book have to do with us? But in the midst of all of Isaiah's prophecies, what do we read in Isaiah 55:1? Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price, without money. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen to me, God says, and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him that is the servant. As a witness to the people, a leader and commander of the people. Surely you, servant, shall call a nation that you do not know. And nations who do not know you shall run to you. Because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you. See, Isaiah's cry of return to God, if you will is a part of the larger movement of Scripture where God saves Jews and Gentiles alike all through the sufferings of Christ. So let's fast forward. Some 700 years later, from this family, the family of the Hebrews, Jesus would be born. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would assume flesh. And be a perfect man. Not renouncing any of his divinity. But putting on flesh. And living a life like you and me. He would be an infant. And a toddler. And an adolescent. And a teenager. And a young man. And an adult. The scriptures would say that he would grow in wisdom and stature. In favor with God and man. He would then become, in all of his life, the embodiment of all the promises of Scripture. He would be the one who would be fully righteous before the living God. He would be the one that was crushed. And listen, friend, do you understand that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just physically suffer? We sang a lyric about the deep stroke of, A pain that was inflicted upon Christ. What was it? That the sins of all the people down through the ages who would ever trust in him would be placed on him as if they were his. That's right. Your sins as if they were his. And he would lawfully pay for them as if they were his when they weren't. And God would pour out judgment for your sins, Christian, on Christ. And he wouldn't just make atonement for some of them. But he would take the wrath of God for all of them until it crushed him to death. And that's where he took your sins, Christian. To the grave. And on the third day he rose victorious. And the message of the scriptures, of all the promises, of all the pictures, down through the ages, is that the one who trusts in him receives a perfect record of righteousness that is Christ's credited to his account. Credited to her account. And all of the sins and filth and even righteousnesses that are like filthy rags have been laid on Christ. And you have been united to him by faith. You've been born again. And you, like Isaiah, can cry out 
in moments of returning to God, you are my Father. Return to God, beloved, in times of sin and doubt, involves a resting on God's grace alone. So Isaiah says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That your enemies, the people that are against us, would see your glory. That once again, we would see your ways and your glory, just like you acted in times past. And there's a little gem in Isaiah 64 for each of you in this place who longs for this kind of return to the living God. Isaiah 64, 4. That God acts for the one who waits for him. You want to return to the living God? You see and remember now God's glory and his ways? You have a clearer picture now of some of the sins in which you've been living in? You're reminded again of your only hope being relying on God alone and his grace. Nothing, nothing is standing in your way. In fact, in the midst of a spiritual wasteland that might be your current spiritual life as it seems to you, you can, with Isaiah, cry out to the living God, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's what it looks like to return to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, help your people this day to remember your ways and your glory. To have their understanding of sin again corrected and focused. And for your people to rely on your grace. In the midst of perhaps spiritual wasteland to simply say, you are father. Because you, father, have sent your son for me. Help your people even now. In Jesus' name.